given that the uh, music has gone quiet, I think that's my cue that I'm supposed to start talking now. I, I want to start by pandering to the audience by saying I've been telling the panel for the last 15 minutes, don't be offended that at the end of the day, we're going into a room that's one third larger uh, than um, the uh, Radio City Music Hall. So it's going to be so cavernous at this time of day, it'll look empty. It's not your fault, it's my fault. And sure enough, you're all here. So extra credit for everybody. I'm, I'm Jeb Sonnenfeld. I'm up at Yale. That's all you need to hear from me uh, because we have such a superstar panel. Our topic is keeping America innovative, how to keep the U.S. on the forefront of high technology growth. Innovation. Uh, Einstein said that the essence of innovation is a combination of intelligence and fun. Well, this is the, the series of superstars for intelligence, and they also have a lot of fun. And my goal is to try to see if we can't get some fun mixed in with their intelligence to wrestle with innovation. Is as the you know the description of the sessions, the US has ceded its core role as dominant technology power in the world, with China investing trillions of dollars in innovation across deep tech, education, and advanced manufacturing at a time of partisan divide. US Congress passed the US Innovation and Competition Act of 2021 on a strong bipartisan basis, which we're going to talk about where this goes. And on the panel, we, we have a great mix of public and private figures uh, to wrestle with this. But just as we think of who we have on our panel, uh, we've, we have uh, Congressman uh, Ro Khanna, who, uh, who has told us that uh, we can refer to him as Ro, so uh, please don't think that I'm being rude and disrespectful, as progressive capitalist who has uh, led the way on technology policy, job creation, and working across the aisle to pass multiple bills into law. Roe was named as the Democrat most likely to succeed in having a bill signed by former President Trump, passing <laughs> five into law. That laugh was just off the record, by the way, uh, during the Trump administration. He's got a kid running for office. We can't. In response to the, uh, the growing economic crisis, Roe led the way on the largest government investment in science and technology since the 1960s. Uh, uh, the Endless Frontiers Act, I thought it would have been Sputnik, but this is bigger, uh, which invests $250 billion in science and technology hubs across the U.S. Roe has worked to spread the wealth of high-paying digital jobs to areas of the country left behind in the digital revolution, partnering with Silicon Valley companies to establish training programs uh, in states like Iowa, South Carolina, Mississippi, to, to rebuild the middle class. And uh, uh, the most important thing that he is, uh, he is a, a Yale alum, that's where I work, uh, and uh, most important of all, he's a fellow Philadelphian way back uh, in, in his heritage. Uh, Governor Bush uh, uh, said that we can refer to him as Jeb. You're wondering if they all have to call me professor. I don't think so. As the 43rd uh, governor of the state of Florida, serving from 1999 to 2007, he was the third Republican elected to the state's highest office and the first Republican in the state's history to be reelected. He's most recently a candidate for Republican uh, presidential nomination in 2016. Uh, Jeb remained true to his conservative principles throughout his two years in office, cutting nearly $20 billion in taxes, vetoing more than $2.3 billion in earmarks, and reducing the state government workforce by more than $13,000. His limited government approach helped to unleash one of the most robust and dynamic economies in the nation, creating 1.3 million uh, new jobs, improving the state's overall credit ratings, including achieving the first ever triple-digit bond, uh, AAA bond rating for, for Florida. During his two terms, he championed major reforms of government in areas ranging from healthcare, environmental protection, civil service, and tax reform. But he also has some technology 
and technology background uh, ideas that we're going to get into very shortly and across a, a great uh, reach uh, on cross-sectoral change and innovation. But we should point out that he too is a professor, having been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I think at one point along you the way. You didn't invite me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I will forgive you anyway. Uh, but the hard, the part I'm not going to mention is the, the the Harvard professorship. So forget that. Yale didn't uh, invite me. And, and I, I thought he was such an honorable, nice guy too. Uh, Jason Crabtree is the chief executive and co-founder of Complex, uh, founded with Andrew Sellers uh, as, as CEO. He guides the vision, long-term direction of Complex, and oversees all aspects of company operations. Prior to Complex, Jason served as a special assistant to senior leaders of the. Uh, Department of Defense, the cyber community in support of operational cybersecurity missions, including research and development, strategic risk management, and digital transformation initiatives. You have, uh, like the rest of the panel, you've probably seen him in the media quite a bit. He's been on all the major networks and cable channels uh, and in, in the, uh, the rest of the print media, speaking often on cybersecurity issues. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of you might even be his, his client here. So where are we on this problem? Well, uh, the U.S. had led in chip development and, of course, in technology uh, uh, since World War II. Uh, and it's not looking so great more recently. Just because they're little doesn't mean they don't matter, is that these chips are the fundamental building block for all advanced technologies, whether or not we're looking at, at AI or, or uh, uh, looking at, uh, 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 at perhaps any, any, any building block uh, cutting edge technology, the chips are going to be critical for understanding uh, our self-reliance for innovation uh, around integrated circuits, integrated and, and, uh, and, and microprocessors. Uh, and yet, what do we see now is uh, the U.S. has uh, maybe 10% uh, at most of, of, of chip manufacturing. And we take a look at back end, we're down to around 1%. Uh, if we go back a few decades, say 1990, we are around 45%. So we've, we've dropped uh, precipitously. Well, who's grown? Well, who do you think has grown? It's about uh, almost 80%, just below 80% coming from Asia with half of that, uh, People's Republic of China and the rest split between the rest of, of East Asia. Uh, now that, that has led to some challenges of what we do. Uh, and uh, I'd love to turn, if I could, to the Congressman is uh, this is not a, a, new, a new issue for you. You've been wrestling with this. Well, Jeffrey, thank you, first of all. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be on the panel, an honor to be here uh, with Governor Bush, who, in my view, uh, has always approached political debate with civility and patriotism, even uh, when I've disagreed. So thank you for that. And Jason, uh, thank you for your leadership on uh, cybersecurity. First, let me say this. I, I think America is and will remain the most innovative nation in the world for a simple reason. When you come to Silicon Valley, uh, we don't have hierarchical teams. You have a team at Intel or at Apple, and they basically have the direction to do what they want. They don't have to go through five levels of bureaucracy. The last technology coming out of Europe, I mean, they did Skype, but think how many tech companies have come out of there. And yes, China has competed on TikTok, but it's probably one of the only places where they actually have an advantage on product. We still lead in the most advanced semiconductor design. The problem is we've had this complacency. We thought, okay, if we're gonna invent the best product, that the scale doesn't matter. And we'll just let other countries like Taiwan or Korea deal with ma mass production. 
Now, do we really want, at a time with the rise of China, our semiconductor supply to be dependent on what happens in Taiwan? Do we really want all the mass production jobs not being in the United States? Of course not. We need to have that mass production of semiconductor chips in the United States. And the Congress, in a bipartisan basis, uh, Senator Schumer, myself, Senator Young, and Representative Gallagher from Wisconsin, uh, in this Innovation Act, have provided $40 billion for semiconductor manufacturing to help these companies establish manufacturing in the United States. That, to me, is smart policy. It's public-private partnership, and it's going to help make sure that we are never dependent on a foreign nation for our critical supply. Well, um, we've never met before, but we're best of friends now because we established the link to Philadelphia and Yale. So I can ask you the hardball question <laughs> that I didn't clear with your team. And, and that is uh, the Bloomberg Innovation List that just came out uh, uh, is, uh, has us falling off the top 10 for the first time ever. We're number 11. And you say the U.S. will- Oh, I don't buy that. You know, people say this. My parents are immigrants from India. Where is the line to go to China of immigrants? Why is the line here still to come to the United States? When the line starts, when people around the world want to stop coming to the United States is when I'll start to worry. I mean, people, this is still the most, we have the most capital, the most risk capital. We have the most, the best and brightest from around the world. We have a lot of advantages. And I'm very, very bullish. There's so many people running America down and pointing everything out. And I guess maybe because I'm the son of immigrants, I'll tell you, this is still an extraordinary country. Yes, we have challenges, we have problems, hey, but Rob. we have a lot going for us. So uh, we should bring Michael Bloomberg in here to explain <laughs> how he's distorted the list. You want to know, he has seven metrics that, that, that define this, and what are they? They have to the level of research and development investment. They have to do with... Uh, with the fabrication, how much of the of the creative work is being done here on, on that end too. It has to do with not just design, but diffusion and adaptation. And that's somewhat what you build into this legislation, right? It's uh, so, so maybe we'll, we'll see that change. But uh, I'm just wondering, um, Jeb, when he talks about the bipartisan concern here, that we it, it's got some momentum. Yeah. But we have all these other things. Uh, there's, there's, we hear that, that, that uh, Senator Manchin has had some, perhaps some great success in the last two or three hours in getting six of needed 10 to get some, a, a, a different version of voting rights uh, legislation together. And the rumors are that the next four are lining up tonight. So maybe in two weeks or so, well, who knows? But it's caught in the, in the weeds right now as infrastructure is, and is uh, the, uh, a number of issues where we thought we had momentum uh, it, it's hit the wall. Do you think that Roe is too optimistic or do you think that both parties are going to take this over the finish line? Our, our political system, Roe, thank you for those great words. You stole everything I was going to say. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, thank you for hosting us. It's great being with a great entrepreneur here. So I, I think the key to this is to realize our, our system is dysfunctional, but there are good people inside it that want to find common ground. And in the pandemic, I think there's just such an eye-opening experience for all of us. You take the lens back a bit. We've had learning losses in the K-12 system that have, are epic, that um, are, are creating inequality for 10 years down the road. The digital divide became pretty clear because some of us could actually enhance our productivity with high-speed internet in our homes, get, get uh, telehealth, be able to make sure our kids were well-educated, we were thriving, many of us were thriving in that environment, too many people weren't, and we're leaving people behind. 
And if you look at the rural areas uh, of our country, clearly um, there's an opportunity now to say, in this crisis, what do we learn? And we've learned a couple of things. One, that there's big inequality that we need, we can address. We don't have to stop. To, we don't have to talk about it in cocktail parties. There are ways to solve this problem. And the second is supply chain um, dependency, which Rogue is bringing up. It's not just semiconductors; it's across the board. And we should have a strategy to make sure that we're secure. It's in our national security interest to do that. Here's an opportunity. I don't think Democrats, Republicans disagree with that. And then finally, I think we have to deal with the 10 million people that aren't getting jobs because they don't have skills for the jobs that exist. And that's, that is a chronic problem that existed before the pandemic that has gotten worse. So you take those three things. They're not partisan. It's not ideological. And I think Congress, um, I, you know, I hope that uh, Joe Manchin doesn't get sick or anything because he's kind of holding the, holding the power here. And he's a rational guy and he could bring people together. And I'm optimistic that that will happen. Well, uh, we, if we have a shared consensus of for two out of three on the diagnosis, maybe we can stir up some trouble in the minutes that remain a little bit downstream when we take a look at the, uh, at the resolution at solutions, and maybe we'll have some different approaches to solutions. But it is kind of nice to see people across the aisle agree, isn't it, uh, and, uh, about common issues of patriotic concern. This is your calling, Jason, right? Weren't you a West Point guy? I was. So our national security has been in your training from the beginning. Are we overstating this, though? I mean, look at them. You've got a room full of financiers who many of them grew up going and taking uh, economics courses uh, and believing David Ricardo with, with the theory of comparative advantage that each, each company, each country brings to the global marketplace what they can do at its best. And we don't need to be self-reliant is that if the South Koreans are going to give it to us at a cheaper price and uh, and a lot of what uh, a lot of the manufacturing that we've lost here was also very unsafe manufacturing. There are a lot of uh, a, a lot of problems with women working, and uh, the 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 at the back end of chip manufacturing is very labor intensive and has a lot of toxic chemicals. And Intel and others were happy to get rid of them, uh, especially AMD. So you know, is that a bad thing? Is that maybe we we let other countries that they're willing to do it for us? Why is that a problem? I mean, how much does Apple manufacture? Are they they're outsourcing it all? Well, I think the reality for the United States is that talent, trust, and transparency are going to be a critical part of the future. When we talk about talent, there are people that are being left behind. If we can just hold briefly on the talent, because I know you don't trust me that I'll manage the time well enough to get to it. <laughs> but since all three of you have tried to go down that path, uh, definitely I'll try to frustrate sure. you by telling sure. me about what's the security issue first there. Yeah. As our security expert, about relying on, uh, on Korea, relying on... Um, uh, the uh, other parts of Asia, if you don't want to trust China, Taiwan, elsewhere. Well, well, you have to have talent to have trust, because at the end of the day, the supply chains that we're trying to operate, especially in an increasingly digital world, an increasingly outsourced world, an increasingly interconnected world, require that people who are operating things like software as a service companies, like my business, they're a critical part of your operations. These are outsourced entities, and they're an ambassador for your brand. And I think when we understand what it takes to operate these things, you look at the cyber insecurity crisis we have in this country right now. Why is that happening? Part of it is because of massive vulnerabilities in core products at places like Microsoft. They're creating massive, massive issues and costs in our economy. We actually have to be digging into those things and reestablish trust that the software products, the technology products do what they say they're going to do. That only works if you have the people. That only works if you have the educational system. That only works if people want to continue to line up at the gates. And if they line up at the gates, they line up at the universities, and they have an opportunity to stay. 
we have real options, real hope about actually creating an environment where this is the best place to do applied research and development. And I'll set the Bloomberg metrics aside, but operationalizing technology is hard. How many finance professionals here have tried to do things like adopt AI and machine learning only to find out they didn't have any of the basics in place to actually do it in practice? A lot of people. That's happening across our government. It's happening in the private sector. So when we talk about all these new topics, many of them put the cart before the horse, and we really need to make sure we're building in those fundamentals and not leaving people behind as we think about the future of the talent base that's going to do it for us. So there you have it. Uh, all three of you uh, agree that David Ricardo is wrong, that we need uh, to be self-sufficient, especially in something as fundamental. You don't believe that? No, I don't believe complete. It would, it would create huge poverty all around the world, including our own country. But there's a middle ground here. There are key elements of our, of our I mean, look, if Apple tomorrow, if, if, if we have frictions that, that get higher with, um, with China, given the, uh, given the fact that the supply chain for the Apple phone, which is an integral part of our lives, uh, is, is made there, even though the value add is outside of China, by the way, it's here and it's in Germany, it's in Japan and Korea, our allies, but if they, if they stop allowing Apple phones to be sold and, they, and, and there was a disruption in the supply chain, that would have a huge economic impact and a national security impact in our country. So there are elements that we have to be, we have to harden our supply chain for sure. I would advocate, by the way, reshoring, not nearshoring and reshoring. You know, we should look at Mexico and we should be, be a North American economy. And um, there's huge opportunities there for, for elements of this, not all of it. Part of it has to be done here. Part of it can be done in Asia for sure. It's not, I mean, Ricardo's not completely wrong at all, but it's not a zero sum game. It's not either or. Uh, so you want to bring a little bit back here and, and you bring it back to North America. It doesn't have to be the US necessarily, but just somehow in Mexico, you can reach this a little more easily. I want to make sure that raw, you know, our rare earths that we, we can access it because that's an integral part of of, uh, of technology. I want to make sure that our semi reliance on semiconductors. Look, Ford Motor Company shut down their plants because they couldn't get chips across the spectrum of Is our economy. These are issues that relate to supply chain logistical bottlenecks as well as supply chain challenges. So uh, we can do this in partnership with other countries. We, we can't do it by ourselves, but there's so many lessons learned from this last, last two years. Let's learn them and then act on them. Do you know what the contingency plans are if, uh, if we lost 40% of our chips from China and let's just say uh, that things were going the wrong way in Taiwan and we don't need to make headlines and, and con uh, make any political conjecture about Hong Kong versus Taiwan, but let's just say that the supply was less accessible there, what our contingency plans are in the U.S.? I'll let my colleagues speak to that. I think it's well, pretty bad. Well, I'll, I'll save them for giving the wrong answer. We have none is that the leaders of all the chip makers that I talked to for this panel tell me we don't have a contingency plan. Uh, now, uh, we still are a, a major headquartered company for chip manufacturing, but, the man, but we don't really don't control where those plants are. You know, one, one big shoe manufacturer told me he wanted to bring his, the biggest one in the country, wanted to bring shoes back to the U.S. And the Chinese told us, uh, no, you can't do that. We're going to shut you down if you try to do it. And he realized he's just the marketing arm of a Chinese operation. Uh, so it's hard to bring it back here. Should there be incentives, uh, some kind of tax incentives to reinvest back here in, in manufacturing and chip making, Ralph? Absolutely. And there should be federal support when you have massive capital expenditures to set up volume manufacturing factories. You need 
uh, federal purchase agreements or federal financing agreements. We did that with the vaccine, right? I mean, we provided purchase agreements to Pfizer and to Moderna, and that incentivized the private sector. So we have had a history going back to Alexander Hamilton of having the private sector work with the federal government to produce a very strong economy. Other countries have copied us. I don't know why we can't do what's worked to build us into the the superpower we are. It's not a hard problem to solve because we have the innovation. We just need to do the volume manufacturing. Does the CHIPS legislation have tax incentives for manufacturing? Bill? Because some would argue we chose to not fabricate here, to outsource it. We chose to do it. And it's much cheaper and easy for, easier for U.S. companies to build a chip making plant in China than it is to do it here. I think the, the, the problem, I mean, it's, it's a complicated issue. As the governor said, on the one hand, Look, the fact that millions of people are out of poverty around the world is probably good for stability, but we paid insufficient attention to jobs in this country. We said, okay, as long as consumers are paying less prices, uh, who cares? And the reality is those are good paying jobs. We should have those jobs in the United States. And so the CHIPS Act is one concrete bipartisan initiative that would fund a lot of that. What, what, what's the level of tax incentives that you would put in there? Because as you know, uh, in, in Korea, they're, they're uh, in the next three years, are funding about $70 billion uh, into chip manufacturing. Uh, it's it's uh, more, two and a half times that. And in China, with the explicit goal that Xi Jinping has, is to have self-reliance, Jeb, in three years. Let's so be really clear, they, though, they China, were zero China the is terrible at semiconductors. Horrible. I mean, and, and where has China's innovation been? They've copied a lot of the United States innovation. I mean, I don't know. Is there anyone in this country, in this room, who would want to go start their company in China? It's I, I get that they're they're an authoritarian system that is an inferior system to a free market pro system that allows for immigration. I mean, it, I fundamentally believe that the the challenge is on our chips. Fifty billion dollars is what chips would authorize. It would allow for TSMC wants to expand in Arizona. It would allow Intel, other companies, to expand. Uh, the solutions are there. I just think we have to have the strategic investment. The preferred provider for a lot of the U.S. government outside of the security agencies is Lenovo. That's a Chinese tech company, uh, Chinese-owned, Chinese-manufactured. Uh, you know, you just wonder, Jeb, do you think that um, that we're picking winners and losers by some of these tax incentives? Do we do, do we know how to do this the right way? It's national industrial planning. If the Chinese want to go into their 14th, uh, uh, you know, five, five year yeah. plan, let them try it. Like the Soviets, it worked out real well for them. Um, I, think, I think we're a bottom up country. I think there's a useful role for, for Washington, particularly in basic research. The, there's the success stories are, I mean. So basic research you would fund, but you don't totally. agree with Roe on funding plant, building plants. Providing incentives for, for companies that are willing to put up capital to do it rather than saying, you know, this is, this is the one we're going to do, making it, a, making it something where you're supporting private sector involvement, which I think is what Roe has, has proposed in this bill, that's okay. But if you, if you have a venture capital arm inside the Department of Energy, we went through that and it didn't really work out very well. Government is not designed to be a venture capitalist, to be a risk taker. And, um, and, and our government particularly, I mean, maybe, maybe China knows how to do this well, it doesn't look like it to me, but it's a complete, comparing Korea or China to the United States misses the whole point. We're Americans, damn it. I mean, we operate in a totally different way. We operate in people's, you know, in a garage with a dream to pursue it. So support that rather than have an industrial policy that 
dictates how this is all supposed to come out. Ro, do you want to respond to that? So, you know, the, the Chinese that had this, uh, the first, the first uh, five-year plan uh, gave them the first bridges, the first automobiles, the, the, uh, the first in a lot of technologies. The second five-year plan was the Great Leap Forward. That was a disaster. They made a big, big wrong bet in, the, in the agricultural paths that was, and small, you know, backyard furnaces for steel. It was a disaster and stuff. So what do you think? Is, is, is Jeb right that, that, that maybe you want to withdraw the national industrial planning part of this by picking the winners and losers? I don't think we're picking winners and losers. I mean, obviously, the governor and I probably have a disagreement of how big the role of government is, but I think fundamentally we both believe uh, in the public-private partnership. I mean, I imagine the governor would support the fact that we invested in DARPA. They gave us literally the internet. I mean, it wasn't China that invented the internet. It wasn't Europe. It was Vince Cerf sitting there at DARPA with U.S. tax dollars. Uh, the fact that GPS emerged from there. And the investments, if, if you have Intel saying, look, uh, Korea is rolling out the red carpet, China is rolling out the red carpet, other places are, we need certain tax incentives to put the factory here, we need certain capital uh, help with certain loans, I think that is perfectly fine. Now, on the investments, I will say that I think it's better to have that administered by local regions if you're, and, and help with the private sector in picking bets so you don't have government bureaucrats or Congress uh, making some of the determinations. Uh, but in terms of fundamental research and helping on factories and plant building, I think that's a perfectly good use of uh, the federal government. One, one other point, there's a federal financing bank that provides loans and purchase agreements to federal agencies. Um, actually, Senator Rubio and I are, are, are working on something where we would say, if you want to reopen a factory in uh, Ohio, why can't that, why can't that uh, federal financing bank help GM do that for a public purpose. So I think we have to explore those type of opportunities. So, uh, and I think you're right. It was actually not Al Gore who invented the internet. Good for you. It, uh, and in fact, in, in the internet, the DARPA had a long history, of course, of, of spawning technological development, just like the, uh, the Interstate Highway Act, of course, uh, took us through parts of the country. And, uh, but there are, you know, a, a, a lot of people in, in, in your party, uh, Jeb, didn't think those things was the right way to go. Uh, the, Dwight Eisenhower didn't like the interstate highway system. Yeah, he. Or Lincoln either. <laughs> Lincoln, Lincoln there are people that are still arguing against the Railroad Electrification Act. My, my old student Jeff Skilling, who we probably shouldn't bring up his name here, was arguing back as a student. He thought the Rural Electrification Act was awful. He said those farmers, you know, want to pay for it, they should go out and pay for it. We don't have the government try to, to manipulate private markets. But it sounds like you guys will find some common ground. On where I mean, you know, mRNA came from the government financing. It, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and great. And if if we just if we said that the, they they found the basic research that created this incredible platform from which now we could find cures, and then they provide it to the private sector and allow entrepreneurs, many of whom are coming from other countries, to pursue their dreams, and they do it with a vengeance, and they do it through trial and error, and they do it one step forward, ten steps back, twenty steps forward, as is the case with Moderna. I mean, they were, that was a revenue, did not have a dollar of revenue, and now it's a business worth billions of dollars. That wouldn't have happened if you, if you contained that through a bunch of rules and through the government being heavy-handed. But there is a proper role for these, these long-term basic infrastructure deals as well as research to, to maintain our, our competitive posture, for sure. Well, some people are trying to layer into Rose legislation uh, blocking uh, the, the loss of intellectual property developed in U.S. universities that can migrate back to other countries. And 
Uh, are you uh, see the, any problems? The reality of this is that when you look at things like mRNA and you look at a lot of DARPA programs, when basic research programs are actually creating these fundamental technologies, entrepreneurs can combine them in novel ways to create new services that deliver operational business benefit or consumer benefit. And that's where the government, to your point, you know, Jeb and, and Roe, I think, uh, you know, the reality is that's a much more appropriate place for private sector to play. And I think one of the things we have to be careful of, and I think we've gotten close to the line, and I, I don't think the new legislation does, but I think there have been some historical missteps where we've started to play venture capitalist or we've started to get into picking winners and losers, and those haven't always ended well. But the reality of this for us has to be that those fundamental building block technologies need to get matured to technology readiness levels that they can be readily accepted by private sector capital and risk takers that are not in a position to take fundamental technology risk. They're there to take distribution risk. They're there to take actual product market fit risk. They're able to think about how those combinatorics are going to manifest in commercial opportunity. And that's something that's a lot more important, but it can't turn into Silicon Valley, no offense, tourism and innovation tourism. Most of the good ideas in America aren't in Silicon Valley. They're all over the country. And that goes back to how we have to make sure not to leave the rest of the country behind. As we so Jason, what's your view on, on making sure that we build capacity? Well, building capacity comes well, down to, to actually got six developing. Yeah, I know. We got to, I, to before we move on to, to the to the talent management issue, which I know uh, uh, Jeff and Jason are starting to open that door again, and I'll, we're going to turn to it in one second. Uh, anything you want to tell us more about your expertise in cybersecurity and technology? I won't make you talk about cryptocurrency because you chafed at it before. <laughs> uh, surveys overwhelmingly blame uh, cryptocurrency for ransomware, but that would have three quarters of this room up in arms, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't possibly bring that up right now. However, uh, you look at the new three Chinese uh, cybersecurity laws, uh, the first of them, which was three years ago, says kind of like the old, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas, and I, by the way, I hope Anthony Scaramucci keeps this in New York and not back to Las Vegas, is that, um, that data created in China has to stay in China. Uh, I think that would be a a violation of general agreements of tariffs and trades going back 30 years, but nobody's challenged it. Yeah. Well, well, internet balkanization is a real thing. And one of the challenges that we have to address as a country is it goes back to this idea of trust and supply chain transparency. It's not just the hardware level. You know, There's more technology above the chip than in the chip. Right? Not to say that they aren't important building blocks. Are you worried about this Chinese law? It has to be managed well, by it's not Chinese, just China. There's all kinds Chinese of data and nationalization and localization laws. And remember that we're seeing the same kinds of changes happening with privacy considerations, not just things like GDPR in the UK. There's California has a law. Virginia, where we're headquartered, has a new law. And by and large, that's going to be positive for us to think about data as an emerging element of property. Remember, most of the corporate balance sheet used to be physical assets, those factories, intangibles dominate the market value of most real digitizing technology companies. So we have to deal with incentives and structure and investment that aligns with the fact that most of the value you're creating as an entrepreneur in a digital business is increasingly being tracked in a different part of the balance sheet. And that has massive ramifications for how we actually build capacity. Well, you just nailed it. And you've been such a good sport. Tell us about the skill shortage and what we do about talent issues that we we take a look at uh, universities as uh, as uh, close to 90% of the universities in our country have uh, uh, the majority of their STEM students are international students. Sure. And we're down 75% this year on in international student enrollment. Well, I mean, this is a huge challenge, right? So uh, I think for us, we have to do a better job of making it attractive to start and build businesses here. 
and we have to do a good job of tying this to immigration policy reform. When you look at the amount of, of technology talent that is starting to go to overseas, right? I went to grad school in Oxford with my co-founder, but you know, a lot of those folks should have come to the United States to start businesses. And a bunch of them didn't. A bunch of them went to other parts of the world. I'd love for everybody that we graduated with overseas to want to come here because it's the best place to build a business. Some of them are. But when we have talent applying to U.S. universities, and you look at the amount of university research R&D spending that is starting to globalize, we should be maximizing the amount of it that continues to build in the United States. We should be maximizing the conversion of those talented people into our society and bringing their families here. And some of that's just stability and trust that they don't have uncertainty. But instead, we've seen the, uh, the, uh, the U.S., which has been such a magnet for the world's top talent, and as well as people who, who are suffering as refugees, that uh, we see them as somehow displacing opportunities for American workers when the reality is, of course, they're, they're job creating and that 45% uh, of the current Fortune 500 firms are either created by immigrants or by first generation. And, you know, at Google, Tesla, Intel, these are all created by, uh, uh, by, by immigrants. And um, a quarter of the tech workforce is uh, foreign-born right, of their current workforce. International talent, Jeff, is so important, and we have to create a society that's predictable and welcoming. And if you don't have a predictable future and you're thinking about bringing your family here, that undermines our competitiveness as a country. What's happened, Ro? Is it, is it the last four years, uh, just between us, and the, I trust these people with your life, by the way, uh, is that candidly... Uh, that what happened Trump is been... Jeb didn't win in 2016. His vision on immigration would have been much better than Donald Trump's. I mean, I don't agree on everything, but let me let me say this as a, a son of immigrants. You know, I, I, I was born in Philadelphia, 1976, our bicentenary. My grandfather spent four years in jail with Gandhi as part of India's independence movement. My parents came here in the 1970s. I grew up in Bucks County. It was about 95% white when I was growing up. But I had little league coaches who believed in me. I had high school teachers who believed in me, neighbors who believed in me. And at the age of 40, this country elected me to represent Silicon Valley, arguably the most powerful economic place in the world. That story is not possible in almost any other country. Germany wouldn't put a first-generation German in charge of their most, uh, representing their most important industry. That ultimately, I believe, is the story of America. And no politician is going to change that fundamental story. We're a story of people who come with ambition, dreams, and it's what makes us the most exceptional nation in the world. And I don't care how many Donald Trumps or other people come along, they're not gonna change the fundamental So what do we do to make country. this more hospitable uh, to, to new Americans to come here? How do we get people a permanent residency status earlier? But there are people here that are coming for technology jobs, can't get an auto, can't get a driver's license, can't rent a house, let alone buy a house, and that the spouse can't work. I mean, you know the complications are, uh, and, and the kids they they age out of, of of protection and under the visa, and it's very it's easier said than done. And there's a reason why we are falling. You could talk about us still being a magnet. But we aren't the magnet we were. We need to brush it up a little we, bit. We can talk about the details of policy, but I'll say, and I'll give the governor the last word. I and I, there are places. Look, I don't want to that Jeb Bush and I disagree. There are certain places that George W. Bush and I disagree. But President Bush, one of the moments that I thought was a highlight was after 9/11 when right. he went out and he talked about Muslim Americans being Americans. And you know, Jeb has always, in your rhetoric, been pro pro the value of immigrants to this country. 
We need more people willing to tell that story of America. We need more people willing to tell that story in the Republican Party. And that it's not about the policies. It's about what, what you believe America to, is. And I think if we have more voices like that, we're going to be fine as a country. You know, I think it's, it's a wedge issue on both sides. And both sides think they win by having this gridlock because it's gone, you know, the gridlock has existed before President Trump got in. You know, we should control the border. You, you mentioned all these other countries that really got it going on great. They control the borders. Right. They, don't, they don't allow people to come in. Uh, other, and they actually don't allow many people to come in legally, for that matter. Um, and I think we need to move to a merit-based system where we narrow the number of people coming. We, we're the only country in the world that has extended family being um, allowed in. You know, adults, siblings, and, 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 and parents. I think parents ought to be able to come in and children of immigrants ought to be coming in. But if you narrow that and then expanded by a half a million the people that, are, that would be restricted legally to pick the kind of people you want to create jobs for all Americans, that's part of the answer. We have to control the border. There's, there's a solution here if we depoliticize this. But the bigger issue to me is why is it that we don't focus on the next generation of Americans not being able to have the skills to be successful? What, I mean, this shouldn't be a political issue either. Um, but we, we dumb down, we lower expectations. We actually had the state of Oregon this year passed a law that said it is, it is unjust to have an accountability system, a testing system uh, that has whites and Asians being more successful than other minorities. Who's, who, who thinks that's gonna be a great outcome over 10 years? Where you're ending up saying, you know, you have this, what my brother called the bigotry, the soft bigotry of low expectations. We should have high lofty expectations for every person. We don't have the luxury of having some kids educated and some kids not. We don't have, we, our demographics demand that we do far better. And then the final thing I'd say is we're, we're the whole focus is on getting a four-year degree, you know, and psychology is the number one major. And 60% of kids graduate with a, with a, in six years with a four-year degree and the number one degree is psychology. Come on, man. I mean, we should maybe move away from that and start focusing on career and college readiness in high school and then offer nationally recognized certificates that give, could give people immediate jobs at a much higher pri uh, wage than what they could ever imagine being a psych major. After Do you think that Senator death. Sanders um, in the, uh, uh, the social infrastructure, the, 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 the budget re resolution piece, uh, is onto um, a, a solution here by taking a look at free community college for everybody? No. No, we're not. We should have, we should... We is that not intended to, to address those no. left out educationally? What do you uh, think it, that's all about? If there's no expectations, no standards, no, you know, it's just, it's, it's just free something. I don't think that's the That's answer. even worse than psychology. Jeb, what do you think? Well, it's oh, worse if you, if you, you know, at least you won't have debt and fail. Right. I mean, that's a better alternative than failing with debt. But we should be having much higher expectations. We should have, kids are much smarter than we give them credit for. Um, uh, Ro, is that part of the solution that Senator Sanders has in mind? Because you, I do. I mean, look, helped I, lead this campaign. There, there are 25 million digital jobs by 2025. 25 million more than construction and manufacturing combined, and most of them don't require a four-year degree. They require a credential. They require skills. So I would say, in a digital age, you need more than K through 12. If we have free K through 12, we can have a free vocational or post-secondary education. But we disagree on that. But at the very least, we ought to make sure that they are collaborating 
with the private sector on the credentials that are going to get them employed. Right. And that I think that there, there are, look, obviously the governor and I have come from a different perspective, but the point is there's enough of a Venn diagram of overlap to get things done. There's and, enough, and, there's and, enough and, about and, it. Jason, are you finding the talent you need? You know, the reality is areas like cybersecurity, technology have lots of opportunities, but they require different skills. And it requires a mix of vocational skills, and it does require some people with liberal arts. But remember, areas like the law are ripe for a lot of automation with a lot of the kinds of technologies that we're thinking about. There's a lot of opportunities for automation in finance. So we have to get out of saying that there's inherent value in four years or six years and 10 years and say, what are the life skills these people have to support their families, to be contributing members of society, to be good citizens, and in addition to good employees? I want to make it clear I'm not disparaging psych majors uh, because <laughs> every, time, every time I say this, someone comes up and says, my, my, how dare you say that? Look, I mean, you're going to go to graduate school. You're going to spend more time in school. Uh, there's, we have a lot of therapists. We right. probably need As more. As a psych major myself, I'm happy to hear you say uh, that. Jeff, it's, be it's better than, than, than Marco Rubio, who once, who I like, we worked together at, at the Republican debate, said, well, what do we need philosophy majors for? And I did say, well, it was philosophers who helped build America's founding. I mean, Madison, Jefferson, you know, there's, there's a role for them. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is a role for all. And uh, there also was a role for this panel. And this panel knocked it out of the park. I tried not to get in their way too much. Uh, but to bring out some modest uh, variations. But basically, we have three great patriots, three great Americans that are huge contributors to American society. I admire the three of you enormously. And thank you for not letting me tempt you into cyber uh, cryptocurrency because they <laughs> would be furious. And we, the five minutes that were taken away from us, that would have gotten us into it. You know, since we're from Philadelphia, Eugene Ormandy, who was the great conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, once was going into taking the orchestra into a... Um, uh, a rehearsal uh, and the orchestra erupted. Even the concertmeister was like the shop steward. He said, we're not ready to perform. And he said, you have to perform. It's Friday, we're performing tonight. So they said, listen, Ormandy said, it's just Mahler. As long as we begin together and end together, they'll never know the difference. So we, uh, <laughs> we as Philadelphians at least, we began together and ended together. And I want to thank you so much for your trust and your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks.